Good morning. I don't know how much Michael told you, but I've decided to go with the celebrity pastor slip in, slip out method. So if you guys want to get a hold of me, contact my personal assistant and we'll go from there. Uh, no, I know probably most of you don't care, but that we decided it would be wise to, to limit contact this week as Kelly did have a positive COVID test. Um, but I also didn't want to, um, leave my brothers in the hanging. And, uh, I wanted to preach this morning and, and be with you. Um, and please do, you know, email me or give me a call if you have any, any questions, but I'll probably, we'll slip out pretty quick after, after service. Um, so with that said, let's turn to Acts. Acts 13, uh, 38 through the end, through 52 today. And let's pray. Uh, Father, will you feed Christ's sheep this morning? Nourish us and strengthen us for the sojourn ahead um, and give us Christ. Even as he went with the people through the wilderness as a guide and a pillar, may he be with us through to the end of the age. Amen. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 13, 38 through 52. This is uh, the tail end of Paul's message to the, the Jews at the synagogue in Antioch. And then their uh, subsequent response to his message. So let's hear God's word from Acts 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And they went out. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered here to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
This is God's Word. I don't know uh, if there's a more beautiful tool. I'm not usually an object lesson guy, but than the hand plane. This is my favorite. It's uh, seen a lot of neglect and abuse, so it's needing some love. But it was at one time a useful tool to me. I'm not really in that world anymore, but this is a Stanley 60 and a half with an adjustable throat plate. It's, it's a beautiful tool. Uh, among, among many beautiful tools, as I am fond of tools, but I think the hand plane has to be uh, my favorite of all tools. And in the hands of a skilled person who knows how to use a hand plane, how to sharpen it, how to set it up properly, um, it is the most diverse and versatile tool. And for the competent craftsman who's familiar with it, it really becomes an extension of his person. Um, and you, when, you, when you get it dialed in, you just have see-through shavings. and You get a glass finish, and it's just beautiful. In the hands of a person who does not know how to use a hand plane, they're exceedingly frustrating. It's rough. It's difficult to use. The wood chips out. You get an uneven surface. Um, Christ is the most competent of craftsmen, and we are his tools. Paul Tripp, in his book entitled Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, has this definition. An instrument is a tool that is actively used to change something. An instrument is a tool that is actively used to change something. And God has called all of his people to be instruments of change in his redemptive hands. If you would, turn over to Isaiah 49. I'm actually going to begin today in the middle of our passage. And I want to draw your attention to a subtle but powerful assumption that Paul makes when he quotes here from the book of Isaiah. Look at it. Um, I'm read to you verse 47 of our passage first, where Paul quotes and he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So. The context of Isaiah 49, which is where this uh, quote comes from, verse 6 of 49. These are the servant songs. And the servant songs, it's kind of difficult sometimes to tell, is the author talking about Israel or about the Messiah? Um, And generally, as, as they progress, they become less and less about Israel and more and more about the Messiah. But 49 starts out referencing Israel primarily. Um, I'll read from verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. So there it's primarily talking about Israel. It says, you are my servant Israel. But then there's this subtle shift. The prophecy begins to speak more, as I. Howard Marshall puts it, about this person, whoever has the task of restoring Israel. So there's this shift 
sort of messianic, uh, forward-looking. Um, in verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says... This is God speaking. He says, is it too, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the people of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. This is the part that Paul quotes. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we'll look more at 47 in a bit. But do you notice Paul's assumption here? That this passage in Isaiah 49 is about Jesus. Simeon, who, who had long waited for the Messiah, upon meeting the infant Jesus, expressed his joy with the language of this same passage when he says, uh, it says, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of your people Israel. So this passage in Isaiah 49 is about Israel, or I mean about Jesus, and Paul applies it to himself and Barnabas. That's an interesting assumption. He says, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made, to you, made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the application here is that Paul and Barnabas are not on their own mission. They don't view, view themselves as, as sort of autonomous contributors to a mission that they affirm. They view themselves as, as tools in the hands of the craftsmen. This is fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus. Jesus is executing this action through them, through his tools. Paul himself has a particularly personal vantage on this truth. Um, in Acts 9, in his conversion, verses 15 and 16, um, God says to Ananias, Go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and to the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul knows perhaps better than anyone that when Christ's people act in the name of Christ, they do so as an extension of the craftsman's body, as, as tools in the hands of Christ, even, even really as members of the body of Christ. Paul's epistles are by far, uh, they, they contain by far the most dense um, explication of the doctrine of, the, of unity with Christ, or union with Christ. And I wonder if the reason isn't because the very first words that Paul heard from the mouth of the risen Lord were, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting Christians, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So to me, it's the most powerful truth that when we labor in the name of Christ for the cause of Christ, we do so not as mere contributors to a cause that we affirm, but we do so as, as instruments, tools in the hands of a master craftsman.
that, that as we busy ourselves with the work of the kingdom, that it's the very hands of Christ accomplishing his work through us. I mean, I, I just feel so feeble all the time. Just worthless to accomplish anything of value. I'm at best you know, a rusty, dull instrument. And yet, in the hands of Christ, who, who refurbishes, who restores, who fine-tunes, who puts me through what is honestly a painful process of, of grinding and wire-wheeling to get the rust off, he, he equips me and uses me to accomplish His purposes. That's encouraging to me. It's a, it's a motivating thought. It's a focusing thought. That my efforts are not a waste. That, that your efforts are not a waste. He really does use us in spite of us for the unfolding of His glory. So I want to consider the rest of this passage in light of this idea that the master craftsman of Christ is using us for His will, to work out His will. He does so through Paul, through Barnabas, through the saints in Antioch, and even in us. So first let's consider the message. What is the nature of this message that... Paul is preaching that we preach. Um, preaching is the most basic of Christian callings. It's to bear witness to the name of Christ. I think I say it almost every week, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And, and indeed for sanctification. And as we see in this passage, the gospel is the power of God for judgment as well. Luke uses the phrase in this passage, the word of the Lord or the word of God four different times. Uh, as Paul has been preaching to the Jews throughout, as we've gone through this sermon now for a number of weeks, Paul's been preaching to the Jews and he's preached with a singular focus. And that focus is Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. For Paul, it's, it's not been a negotiable question. It's not been a theory of his. It's not been an option of one among many. Um, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the way of salvation from sin. We can be reminded of this of where we left off last time. Um, in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through this man... And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I want us to ask the question, is Christ the content of our message? As we go through life, as we bear witness to those around us. We all, we all communicate a message. Imagine carrying a pail around filled with liquid and as you go, you, you take and you splash it on on people, right? What is the contents of that pail? Is it Christ or is it something else? Now, when I say you preach, I don't mean that you necessarily stand behind a pulpit or on a street corner, but as you bear witness to the people in your lives, what would they say is the singular focus of your message? I mean, is it morality, loyalty, uh, politics, kindness, uh, character, all good things, but they're not Christ, right? Is the content of our message Christ? 
We need to have confidence and grow in the confidence that the word of Christ is the only gospel worth telling because it's the only gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm intimidated by uh, the Apostle Paul's level of conviction and confidence. I don't have that. Um, I read an article a few weeks ago by writer Tim Challies about self-confidence, and I thought it was really good. Um, He said, I'm not by nature a person who has a lot of self-confidence. Quite the opposite, really. I care far too much about what other people think about me and concern myself far too much with looking good in their eyes. I can torment myself with shame and regret for little foibles and miscues, imagining what people are thinking, what they're saying to one another. For that reason, I have spent much of my life trying to be unnoticed. As a child, I put great effort into trying to determine the seat in the classroom that would, was least conspicuous and would require the least eye contact with the teacher. I did all I could to get out of situations that would put me before other students. I avoided plays and presentations and anything else that would make people notice me. I probably, it probably all bordered on a kind of neurosis and continued unabated into my teens and twenties. That was then. Today, I can usually stand in front of a group of people and do so with pretty significant degree of confidence. I can stand in front of thousands of people, which is actually quite easy, or before a tiny group of people, which is far tougher, to speak, preach, or answer questions. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I felt like he was recounting my history, and I'm sure many of you feel the same way. I love his solution to the problem. His solution is not so much that he became self-confident, but that he became God-confident. He said, I determined that when I spoke, I would not do so with God's authority. I would do so with God's authority, not mine. I decided I wouldn't stand up in front of people and share my own opinions or bestow my own wisdom. Rather, I would ground what I say in the Bible. Lacking in self-confidence as I am, I would take my confidence from God. So the confidence to preach Christ with boldness comes from conviction. If Christ is the only way in our minds, then there is no other option but to preach Christ as the only way. Uh, Tim is much farther along in all of this than I am, and perhaps you feel the way he did, or perhaps you're the opposite, you feel overconfident. Either way, no confidence or overconfidence is the same sin. It's the same impulse. It's a belief in self-sufficiency. Either I'm not good enough to do it, or I am good enough to do it. Both is a confidence in your own self-sufficiency. In either case, we need to hear this message that it is not we who are sufficient in ourselves, but that we are sufficient in Christ. Now, Paul is so sure that Jesus is the Messiah for these people that he concludes his sermon with an unwavering warning in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astonished and perish For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is a quotation from uh, the Septuagint of 
Habakkuk chapter 1. And Paul's basically saying to them, if you reject this message, you will be counted among the scoffers, among those who will perish, among those who hear the very word of God and don't believe it. Which is a scary position to be in, to hear the word of God and disbelieve it. J.C. Ryle said, um, it would have been well for the church of Christ if the warnings of the gospel had been as much studied as its promises. I mean, I'll be honest with you, it's easy to preach the warnings of Christ behind a pulpit in a room full of people you're quite convinced are Christians. There's not a lot at stake. It's another thing to sit across the table from a loved one and say with confidence and clarity in the word of Christ, if you reject Christ, you will be counted among the scoffers who hear the word of God and do not believe it. Are you willing to accept the consequences of that? How often do we speak with that degree of love to the unbelievers around us? The message of Christ, the preaching of the word of the Lord, is a message of polarity. In Christ alone is salvation. Outside of him there is judgment and condemnation. Choose you this day whom you will serve. In Christ is the forgiveness of sins, justification before the God of heaven. A justification you could never earn by yourself, by the works of the law. You can be set free from your bondage to sin and the law and draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus of Nazareth has died for sinners and been raised to the Father's right hand to intercede on your behalf. But if you reject this Jesus, if you reject the Savior of the world, you walk away from the word of the Lord. You follow the path that is best in your own eyes. And as Paul says to the Jews, In verse 46, you thrust the word of God aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Those tools in the hands of Christ, that's the message. That's propagating that message is the primary function that we serve. Each in our own ways, in our own capacities, But that message is the wheels of the Great Commissions. It's it's the gospel. I think part of the reason we find morality or politics or, or, or preaching just the promises of God without the warnings of God easier is we don't really trust God with the results. We know intellectually the gospel serves both to save and condemn, but emotionally we find it hard to accept the condemnation piece, especially when it comes to those we love. One thing we see here and throughout Acts and throughout the scriptures is that responses to the gospel will vary. We can expect responses to vary. Uh, Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
so Jews and, and proselytes alike are enthusiastic about the gospel. We, we want to hear more. We want to hear more about this Jesus. And so they follow Paul and Barnabas, and he says that they urge the people to continue in the grace of God. Uh, really, the story of the history of Israel is the story of the grace of God. And now these people are at this fork in the road. Which way do they go? Do they follow Christ or do they go another way? Paul and Barnabas encouraged them, continue in the history of Israel, continue in the history of grace, go down the path of Christ, and you will continue in the grace of God. Anytime we have to choose one way or the other, even over basic things, we we second-guess ourselves. Should I have done this? Should I have gone this way? Perhaps the other way would have been better. But Paul and Barnabas encourage them. They say, continue in this way. Press on in the path of grace. Don't let anyone dissuade you. This way of Christ is the way of grace. The other path, the other way is the way of works, which only leads to death. Now, fruit uh, continues to multiply in Antioch, but, of course, not everyone is happy about it. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. I'm thankful I don't have to deal with this. People, you know, if you've seen a comedian maybe get heckled by someone in the crowd, a common one is when he's going through his his act. When does the comedy start? (laughs) Which usually it's a bad idea to do that because comics are like ten times more witty than the drunk guy in the crowd. but Paul here, he's kind of being heckled while he's preaching. or It says actually he's being reviled. The word reviled here is actually blasphemed. Luke says they were contradicting Paul's words. You can picture the, these kind of old Jewish guys, grumpy about what Paul is saying. Baloney, hogwash. <laughs> That's not true. You would throw out the law of Moses. You're not a child of Abraham. But Paul and Barnabas don't flinch. They don't pause. They don't say, well, maybe we did push a little hard. This is our perspective. Take it or leave it. We, we can agree to disagree. Let's band together about what we can agree upon. Now they're empowered with boldness by the Holy Spirit and they say in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So they're, they're standing firm in this gale of blasphemy and they say to you, to you Jews belong the promises and the covenants and the Messiah. This message of grace is your rightful inheritance as Jews. That's why we came to you first. But you're going to thrust it aside. You're going to judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life by shoving aside your own promised Messiah. Okay, we'll take the message to the Gentiles. For me, I, I kind of wish I had preached through Acts 13 before Galatians. Cause this so illuminates Galatians for me. Uh, we, we see it in Galatians, the same themes, that true Jewishness, true sonship to Abraham, to be a true heir of the promise is through the Messiah, through the seed of Abraham, through Christ. Uh, 
Whatever ethnicity you are, it doesn't matter. If you believe in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are the Israel of God. In verse 47, For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That these Jews were expecting a restoration of Israel as a re-centralized entity. But Paul's reminder here is a sharp rebuke. He says, essentially, Yahweh has spoken in his word. He said, the restoration of Israel is too light a thing. My Messiah, my servant, when he comes, will bring salvation to the nations and to the ends of the earth. Jesus will go to the Gentiles. There's great freedom in, in simple faithfulness to the Lord as instruments isn't in his hands. Uh, my, my friend, I have a good friend who was raised in the four square church and then the assemblies of God church. Um, and he's now a more reformed thinking. And he said, he was telling me the other day there was a missionary that visited his church from Papua New Guinea. And this is extremely difficult work. It's an older couple, slow progress. He says, like each of the tribes there has their own language, kind of like the Native Americans did have their, so there's thousands of languages. They're working to do translation work, um, sew up people if they can need stitches. They're, they're just, um, doing the work of missionaries in this, this remote place. And my friend was saying, it's wonderful to hear a missionary like that uh, speak from a reformed perspective. Because the missionary said, we have a 100% success rate. Those whom God has elected, he will call. God's word goes out and it will not return void. That's why we read in verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's one way to read that. Appointment to eternal life precedes belief. And it's not an excuse to lay aside excellence or clarity or beauty or patience or wisdom in our presentation of the gospel. Nor is it an excuse to leave evangelism for someone else who will come along. But the doctrine of divine election puts us in our place as mere tools of Christ. Mere tools in the, in the hands of the true craftsman. The true craftsman knows that which he wants to shave off and he knows that which he wants to leave. And it's his prerogative. God doesn't need us to come up with ways to attract a crowd. He doesn't need us to soften his hard edges. We don't save anyone by saying the right thing, nor do we bar the doors of heaven by accidentally saying the wrong thing. Divine election is so comforting to the evangelist. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region to the praise of the word of the Lord. This is just one more victory in a long list of victories and acts for King Jesus. 
even as those who have been most should should have been most likely to accept the gospel and believe and rejoice that their Messiah had come, shoved it out of their path on the road to their own destruction, Christ still brought in many whose names were written in the book of life. Now we're also reminded here of the cost of discipleship, that that a persecution accompanies faithfulness. Uh, Remember again what uh, God said about Paul. He said, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In verse 50 of our text, we read, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So this is basically political persecution. Uh, Scholars suggest there's a high degree of interest um, from women from the higher classes in Judaism. And one of the reasons is they don't have to be circumcised. There's less cost for them to become proselytes. Um, so there, there was likely women of high standing in the synagogue who were stirred up by the Jewish leaders who then, because they were women of high standing, their husbands ruled in the region, um, stirred up their husbands, and as a result, they stirred up persecution and drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city, and they were therefore unable to continue to evangelize or to continue to disciple new converts. But I think it's a true axiom of the New Testament, persecution accompanies faithfulness. Very often, though, it doesn't come in direct ways. It would be nice if it did. Like We hate what you're saying and we're going to abuse you for it. <laughs> that would be easier for us. It comes in these dirty, underhanded ways. The, the political policy, you're disrupting the peace and unity of our city. Would would you mind leaving? But if we will preach the gospel faithfully, both the promises and the warnings, we can expect opposition, persecution, rejection, reviling. We can expect to be unjustly maligned, as First Peter says, to be called bigots or accused of disruption or disunity. I think it's important to point out that Paul's calling is unique. We're not Paul. Uh, But the difference, I think, is between his calling and our calling is a difference in degree and not in kind. In other words, we're not called to be apostles. But we are called to be messengers in our own context. And we're not called from what I can observe, to the degree of suffering that Paul endured. But Jesus does call us to bear a cross. That's why Paul calls Timothy to imitate him. And he even recalls, in part, this very experience in 2 Timothy 3, um, 10 through 14. Paul says to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So we can expect persecution if we're going to be faithful to the gospel. And if we enter into to an evangelistic context, an evangelistic situation with our eyes wide open, understanding all these things that we've talked about so far, uh, that, that the content of our message is Christ in Christ alone. That unwavering confidence in that message comes from conviction that Christ is the, the only Savior in the world. If we remember that, that responses will vary to some a stench of death, to others the aroma of life. And if we remember that God is absolutely sovereign over those who will believe. And that we can expect persecution. If we keep all of that in mind when entering an evangelistic context, we can exit said context with a clear conscience. Now that might sound weird to you. Exit an evangelistic context, an evangelistic situation. Aren't we called to, to stay and to preach and to persist through persecution even to death? And the answer is no. Not always. Sometimes that may be the case. But not always. There are there is a category of person in the New Testament who who by all rights should have believed the gospel, but instead has thrust it aside and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. There does come a time when we stop casting our pearls before swine, when we stop preaching and leave them to go their own way, and even perhaps stop burdening our souls with prayer for them. John says a bit cryptically in, in 1 John five sixteen and 17, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So the sin that leads to death is apostasy. It's unbelief. It's the sin of willfully rejecting Christ, even though it has been clearly demonstrated to you that Jesus is the Christ. It's an excruciating step to take, um, to be sure, and one that should never be taken lightly. Uh, it's not a step we would take with our atheist buddy. I've told him the gospel a couple of times, and the darn guy won't believe, so I'm, you know, he can take a hike. That's, that's not the point. But for those who know better, like the Jews who had the scriptures, who knew the scriptures, who, who by all rational logic should have been the first to re- receive and rejoice over the Messiah, or, or for those who've been raised in the church who know the gospel, but, but willfully reject it, that's the category of person. And again, such circumstances are never cut and dried. Very challenging. But when the time comes and we do so, we, we have to do that, we can do so with a clear conscience. Knowing that, that we have been faithful and that they are in God's hands, not ours. 
Jesus sets a precedent for this when he sends out his disciples and he tells them as they're preaching the gospel, whoever shall not receive you or hear your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you depart from that house or that city. It's a symbol of rejection. Uh, Craig Keener says, Jewish tradition suggests that many Jewish people on returning to the Holy Land would shake the dust off of pagan land, uh, of the pagan land from their feet. He says also because the temple was considered holier than the rest of Israel, they would also shake the dust from their feet when they entered the temple. So it is a symbol of rejection. Paul and Barnabas follow Jesus' precedent. They shake off their feet for those at Antioch who had rejected the gospel. And, and surely they didn't do this without, without feeling, without painful emotions. As we've said before, Paul, Paul says in Romans 9 that he would be damned if his countrymen could be saved. So if we're shaking the dust off our feet against someone with a calloused cold heart or with malice toward them, it's probably a sign that we haven't actually loved them well enough yet to take that step. But Paul and Barnabas left. They left with clean feet and a clear conscience. And they moved on to their next calling, to Iconium. And they were leaving behind a large group of unseasoned baby Christians in a city of wolves. But we're told they are not left there alone. In verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there to guide them. In a purely earthly sense, Paul and Barnabas came into Antioch and ruined the lives of a whole bunch of people. Whether Gentile who worshipped at the pagan temple or a Jew who worshipped at the synagogue, the lives of these people would never be the same again. Odds are they will be experiencing a great deal of discomfort as a result. But remember Paul Tripp's definition of an instrument. An instrument is a tool that is actively used to change something. It's actively used to change something. And God has called all of his people to be instruments of change in his redemptive hands. We cannot be an effective tool if we are unwilling to be an instrument of change to disrupt the lives of people. But by being an instrument of change, uh, we may ruin comfortable lives, but in exchange, they'll receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So whatever the cost, to them or to me, uh, I can't think of a higher privilege. Amen.